we sing that this morning, and I know, and we believe that, but the reality is some of us have walked in today with some fear, right? And even though we can sing that and we believe it, there's still that internal struggle. So can we just pray for a moment? So, Lord, we believe in you, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, Lord, we come today knowing we should not walk in fear, but a lot of times we do. And so this morning, we just want to acknowledge and declare, Father, that you are the creator, you are holy, and you are good, and you love us, and we can trust you in your goodness. We know this. You demonstrated your love and that you sent your son. And Lord Jesus, you came, showed us the beauty of who you are, and you gave all for us to show us of your immeasurable, unfathomless love for us. We have no reason to fear. And if we've come to you, you've forgiven us of our sins and brought us into relationship with you. And the Spirit... You were sent by Father and Son to indwell us, to live within us, to be ever-present, to empower us, to, to give us the peace that passes human understanding. So we worship you this morning. Uh, dear God, who exists in a community of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and help us with our fears. And we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, a few things about uh, idols this morning. Um, actually, before I get to idols, um, sent something to Carissa, a package, a few weeks ago. Anytime I send her a package, uh, she's got this horrible Jayhawk idolatry. I don't know where it came from. But anyways, so I always tease that a little bit. I'll write something on it like, beware of the fog or something. And I sent her a package, and I wrote in the back, rock chalk. And she showed up at the, the, the apartment office to get her package, and the guy said, he said, wow, you're, you're impressive. And she said, why is that? And he says, well, I can see you're a rock climber. <laughs> she said, really? He said, yeah. He said, look, you, you, got, you always get these boxes of rock chalk. And he said, <laughs> you know, rock climbers do carry the little bag, and they put chalk. And so he was so impressed. And anyways, she had to explain Duke fans. I don't, what's, they're like Missouri fans. I don't, I don't, whoa, yeah, sorry. I, what's up with that? Okay, uh, yeah, we are doing the Real Game of Thrones, this series on idolatry. Uh, a few things I need to say first. Um, you know, for those of you that are in small groups, um, you know, pull this, pull this out to take notes. This is really important. Um, I, I personally have been, I figured out a secret way to determine if small groups were really even using this. So, um, if anybody of you noticed this week, the six steps, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. I think I got more texts this week than I've ever gotten. Uh, yeah, I have no idea what those were about. Somebody sent me this. I really like this. Because last week we were looking at entertainment and media and how it can become an idol. Somebody sent me this. I wonder why I don't hear from the shepherd anymore. That's pretty cool. There's, see, there's the shepherd back there. I don't remember who sent me that. Oh, I, I remember who sent me that, but I just thought that was kind of cool. Um, a few things I want to say about idolatry briefly. Um, 
that I think is important. I think this topic is really important. I've told you it changes the way I view myself and other people and things so much, the way I even share my faith. Um, but I do want to say this. It is not a silver bullet. This isn't the, the, the be-all, solve-all, like we're going to leave this series in November and your whole Christian life will just be amazing with no problem. So please don't take it that way. I think it's very important, but it, it is not. It's so easy, I think, for an emphasis to become that, and I just want to say that it's not. Secondly, I also want to say, I don't want this to become a burden. I don't want it to get to where, like, you're reading, you're doing those reflection questions every week, and you're, you're, like, you're becoming so introspective, like you're just carrying this weight all the time of your idols or something. We are, our goal is to understand them, to, the questions are meant to help us identify them so we can repent of them and be set free. But the intent isn't for you to just, for it to become a weight, um, there's nothing wrong with conviction of sin and with the Holy Spirit tapping you in the shoulder and saying, you're loving that too much. But if it's just becoming this overwhelming burden, that is not from God because Jesus talks about um, that those who are too tired and caring too much, he says to come to me. So um, there is conviction of the Spirit of dealing with me, but I don't want it to be a burden. Third thing is this dog. I really do want you to drill down, though I say that. I think these questions are significant. I really encourage you to be, whether you're in a small group or not, to be going through these and really asking God to show you the things that may um, be the idols of your heart. In that regard, a small group did something really cool this week. Somebody, I think this came out of a small group. You guys all know the book, Are You My Mother? Are You My Mother? One of my favorite books as a kid. Yeah, and uh, one of the, I think it was in a small group, one of the groups, some people came up and said, you know, it feels like we're reading the book, Are You My Idol? Isn't that funny? Like, we're all digging around trying to do. So I do want you to take that serious, to be asking the question, are you my idol? So, um, one more thing. Just to, to, again, to be really clear, we all struggle with this. I struggle with this. I will struggle with this till the day I die, till we... Till we die and meet Jesus and are purely glorified and he frees us finally from sin. We are all, this prayer we prayed last week. I've tasted your goodness, it's satisfied me and it's made me thirsty for more, but I'm painfully conscious of my need for further grace and I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. Triune God, who we sang about this morning, I want thee, I long to be filled with longing, I thirst to be made thirsty still. I, we all are here. I'm here, we're all here, and we're always going to be here, but it doesn't mean we can't take this seriously and try to, to dig in. So that's just some initial things I wanted to say. Okay, one more thing I guess I should say. Uh, a lot of people noticed I was dressed differently this morning, we don't even know why. Somebody in the worship team actually guessed it, it looked like I was going to a funeral, and I actually am here on mourning today. I am mourning a, a very terrible idol, a deep idol, a very terrible idol, and I so that's why I'm wearing these clothes, because we have to mourn things that are, that are bad idols in our lives, right? So this was, just hide, this was just hiding what is a horrible idol in some people's lives that we may need to make sure they get rid of. Just got to be sure that's, <laughs> that's... Okay, enough of that stuff. All right, are you ready to get serious? Uh, Jeremiah, we read Jeremiah 2 last week. Would you stand and read this with me? And it's not chapter 2, 20 to 13, it's 10 to 13, but if you could read this with me. Cross over to the coasts of Cyprus and look, send to Kedar and observe closely. 
See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens. Shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So again, last week we were talking about this question, what is the essence of evil? What's this universe shocking, this thing that appalls the galaxies, that dismays all of creation? It's horrifying. They tremble. They shudder. It's that God's people, that we exchange God and His glory for idols. And specifically, do you remember the two things that the text talks about? This, the thing we talked about last week, that this, this um, great exchange, that it's done in two ways, that number one, we forsake God, who is the only spring of living water, and then two, we have dug our own cisterns, cisterns that cannot hold water. Just yesterday, we were out in western Kansas, we went to um, a funeral, and we were way out west, and I got to visit the, the lake close to Salt, Scott City, it's like the Lake Scott City Lake, it's kind of a little different than the city name, really beautiful, but it's fed by a spring, not by a creek or a river, and there is ruins there of Pueblo Indians, the furthest north and east the Pueblos had ever gotten, and they chose to settle at a place where there was a natural spring. Springs are the preferred choice of water. We talked about that last week, and that's what I was, I showed you the pictures if you remember. But they had abandoned God. They had failed to treasure God according to His worth. They had preferred other things over God. Now, Alexander McLaren has a really great quote about this. He said, um, offer men the smaller gifts. They will run over one another in their scramble for them. But offer them the highest, and they will scarcely hold out a languid hand to take them or to take him, I would say. Isn't that true? So this evil, this forsaking of God and this choosing of, of our own sources of water is like a double insult to God. It's a double slap in the face. It's not only a turning away from Him, but it's turning to other things. So again, I think my point from the last two weeks is that rule-breaking break, rule is not the essence of sin. That It's the rejection of God. It's relationship-breaking. It's the rejection of Him and all of His goodness, His truth, and His beauty, and the pursuit of other things in place of Him. That's really the essence of sin and evil. Last week when I spoke on this text, um, I was holding some cards close to my vest. This word, especially the spring of water, I want us to talk for a minute about that. It's a very significant word. The Bible uses imagery of water and food for God a lot. God and Jesus are both the water of life. Jesus is the bread of life. In Psalm 34, 8, we're told to taste God, see that He is good. We read last week Isaiah 55, 1 to 3, where Jesus says, come and get from me, drink and water. You'll have the richest fare. Um, I could show you so many more examples in Jesus' parables, frequently uses the imagery of a feast or a banquet. So this language of water and food is, really, is used a lot of God. And here's why I think it's so significant. Because when they exchanged God and His glory for idols, what they were really saying is, is they had lost their taste for God. 
They had lost their taste for God. They had tasted Him, but He was not enough. John Piper puts it this way, they put God's perfections to their tongue, to the tongue of their souls, and they disliked what they tasted. Instead of craving Him, they and we crave other delicacies. You know, I've tasted Him, but He's not good enough. I've tasted His perfection, but I would prefer the taste of something else. That they had lost their desire for God, their satisfaction in Him, their enjoyment of Him. And they were saying, essentially, give me something else to drink besides you. I mean, pretty, pretty big deal, huh? Lost their taste for God. So here's what I want to do with this understanding. I want to go to Genesis chapter 3. And I want to look at the first sin. And I know of at least two groups that have even asked the question about that first sin in Genesis 3. So good for those guys who do that, who have done that. Um, but let me read the text. Here's what Genesis 1 to 3, 1 to 7 says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, and I just put in a couple of words, delicious, delectable, because we like, when you teach the Bible, we like to use words with similar letters, right? Does that make sense? Three especially. When it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. Now, I, there's a lot I could do with this text, but as we look closely at it, I want to ask these questions. What was the essence of the first sin the humans committed? What preceded the taking of the fruit and the biting, the disobedience to the command? Something preceded that. What preceded the biting of the fruit? What's the essence of their temptation? And what I would say if you go and look back at this, that they became convinced, um, God knows, they became convinced that God was holding out on them, right? That He was holding out something good, something really good, something satisfying from them. He was holding out on them. Like, almost like, he had given them mountain lightning, but in his own cooler back in heaven, he had Mountain Dew, right? That would be holding out to me. If you, so if I come to your house, you know which one to offer me. They no longer believe God had their best interests in mind. And with the seed of that doubt planted, now here, with the seed of that doubt planted, here's what happened. The woman looked at the tree and she saw three things. It was good for food. It looked delicious right? It looked delicious. But he won't let me have it. And it was a delight to the eyes. But he wants to keep me from it. And it was desirable for gaining wisdom to give the good life what they were really looking for, what they really needed. But he's been holding out on me. 
It was delicious, it was delightful, and it was desirable. And an, eternal sh- and an internal shift began to happen, and they began to desire that fruit and what it represented more than God. Does that make sense? They began to desire that more than God, but it was denied them. And then in their hearts, they said, we will not be denied what is delicious and delightful and desirable, and they took and they ate. Here's the moral outrage of what happened with Adam and Eve. It was that they desired the fruit and what in their mind it represented more than they desired God. They forsook the spring of living water to build cisterns of their own choosing that were cracked cisterns. It's the lie of every idol that you're really missing out until you have them. They wanted other things more than God, and that is the essence of evil. I want to go back. We did this the first week. Look at James again, chapter 1, verse 14. See if this fits. Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their over-desires. We talked about this last week, right? Epithumia, epi-passions, epi-desires is to desire something too much, a good thing too much, right? We're dragged away by their over-desires and enticed. And then after the over-desire, after that conceives, it gives birth to sin, to the disobedience. So before came the biting of the fruit, the sin, before that was the what? The epithumia, the desire for something other than God. And then sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Do you see the connection with Genesis and Jeremiah? You see, before they ate that apple, they had already lost their taste for God. That's why they ate. They preferred something else to Him. So the first sin in the garden was not eating the fruit. They had gone down before that. It was the loss of taste for the all-satisfying, all-supplying spring of living water and a preference for what that tree they thought it could give them. And they said, I want that, I don't want him. That's why when I share the gospel, that we're created for a relationship with God, to live under his loving rule and have a relationship with him. But they rejected God and they lived life for themselves pursuing other things. So yes, they disobeyed. But disobedience to his command was not the most basic thing. It was not the most fundamental thing. It was not the most ultimate thing going on with them. The most ultimate thing is is they desired that more than God. Like, think of it this way. Let's take this. Obedience to God's commands or delight in God and his character. Which to you is, which is more essential? Obedience to to his commands or delighting in him? Which do you think is more essential, more important? As a parent, you just want kids that obey you all the time, or do you want children that delight in you and your relationship? What do you really want? Don't you want the delight? It's the same with him. That's what's at the root of the other. Okay. Now, when we talk about idolatry, I want want to hit a few more concepts that are really important. And... 
I want to talk about affections, and I want to talk about desire, because when you read the Bible, the word desire comes up a lot in connection with idolatry. I think I was telling somebody this week, that word that the fruit looked desirable to them, that Hebrew word is used in the prophets a lot in connection with idolatry. You can look at Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. It talks a lot about their desire in Hosea, their desire for their idols, taking the same word from Genesis 3. This word desire, it's what Paul uses, the, the epithumia, the over-desire. That word is so connected. And I really want to show you why. I've tr been trying to kind of make the case, but I want to come at it from a different angle. Over the centuries in Western culture, we have come to think that knowledge is primary in everything, including our understanding of human behavior, right? That's why our culture's fix for everything is education, right? Isn't that our culture's fix for everything? More knowledge. And knowledge is important. It's important in the Bible. Truth is important. So don't get me wrong in what I'm going to say. But in regards to human behavior, knowledge is not primary. Your behavior is driven not by what you know. It is driven by what you desire and what you love. That's what drives your desire. You don't do what you know. You do what you love. And here's how I know this. I'm sure someday I'll, I'll go to the doctor and he'll say, Garen, if you want to live another 20 years, you need to quit eating red meat, no more steak, from now on a vegetarian diet. And then Pat, that afternoon afterwards, will kindly drive me to Topeka, to Texas Roadhouse, and recommend I order the, what's that thing called? The wedge? Lettuce? Salad wedge? Lettuce wedge? What is that thing? You know, they just cut, they cut a, they cut a, a head of lettuce into four parts, sprinkle bacon bits on it, put it on a plate, and charge you eight bucks. You know that thing? <laughs> that has no flavor. I guess they do, you can put some sauce, I don't know, but... Okay, and so she'll be like, hey, in light of what the doctor said and you knowing you'll live longer if you've become vegetarian, what are you going to order? What do you think I'm going to order? <laughs> okay, I'm not Brandy Delmont, all right? She'll order the wedge, okay? I'm gonna, you, how many times does this happen and people order the steak? Because the steak is what they, what? It's what they desire. It's what they love. Love and desire trump knowledge all the time, all the time. That was a mistake I made for actually a long time in discipling new believers is I, I was really information-based and knowledge-based, and I thought if I just get the Word of God into them, that's all it took, and that's important, and you need to get the Word of God into people, and that needs to be the center of their life. But what I didn't realize is, is it's what people love and their affections that drive that, and if you just give people knowledge and you don't work at their affection level, you're not going to have a lot of impact. You've got to help people to come to see that God is beautiful and that He's good and they desire Him and they want to follow Him and they want to know Him and they're hungry for Him. And when they're hungry for Him, they'll be hungry for His Word and they'll be hungry to obey it. And I made that mistake for a long time and that's fine. Uh, so here's what I want you to know. What defines you is not so much what you think and not what you know. It's what you want. It's what you love and it's what you are hungry for. And that's why the Puritans referred to this, our desires, as our affections in their writings. Because idols don't appear so much to your head. There is a lie to them, but they don't appear so much to your head, your thinking. They capture your heart and your imagination. And that's why the language in Genesis 3 is delicious, delightful, desirable. Or good, delightful, desirable. An idol is anything that captures my attention, my affections... And then my allegiance more than God 
captures my affections, my attention, and my allegiance. It has supremacy in my life instead of Him. That's why Kyle Eidelman in his book on idolatry says the heart of the issue is an issue of the heart. It's not here, it's here. Or James K. A. Smith says, you are what you love. That's the title of his book, in fact. St. Augustine, I love this. My weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. So the battle's here. It's, it's at what you love. It's what you cherish. It's what you desire. And that's why Tim Keller so wisely says, what the heart most loves and trusts, the mind will then find reasonable and the will will find doable. Isn't that a great statement? So, I said this the first week, but you will never understand yourself, you'll never understand others if you don't understand the central role that affections play in our life. And so, a quick aside to parents, um, this is something we'd worked on with our children because of a proverb, and maybe when we come back to Proverbs in a summer or two, I'll talk about this one particular proverb, but what I learned from that proverb is that what Solomon said is, is he was going for his children's heart. And so, as a parent, it just can't be knowledge, Bible knowledge, okay? You've got to capture their heart for God. They've got to, in your instruction, they've got to find God beautiful, somebody they want to know and they want to follow. I mean, that's true in everything. If you're involved with anybody, you've got to capture their heart. And this is a part of the reason I'm doing this series, because if you don't drill down to your heart, to your loves and affections, your desires and your over-desires, you'll never know why you do what you do. I think I'm going to do this. Job understood this. I love this in Job. Just listen, 31, 23 to 28. Job knew it was about what you love. Here's what he said, for, for fear of God's splendor, His beauty, I could not do such things. If I've regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in splendor, so my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then these also would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. Job, this man, who wasn't perfect but of such purity, he understood it was about God's splendor and beauty and the things I give homage to and that I kiss and I become delighted in. Does that make sense? I, just, I love that quote from Job. So in light of that, I want to move on to a second word because our affections and our worship are very closely tied together, intricately tied together. What we love will get our worship. That is the reality. What you love, I would say what you love most or what you love a lot you can love things without worshiping them. So let me clarify. Just what you love, maybe over love, what you love with deep passion, it, it can and will get your worship. We're worshipers by nature. We were created to worship. This is true of every human being on the planet, whether they believe in God or not, we all worship something. We're created to look at something beyond ourselves with marvel and to desire it and to love it with zeal. We are never not worshiping as human beings. We're all pursuing something bigger than ourselves, something transcendent. We have to have a God. I'm going to come back to this in a minute. So we're either worshiping God or we're worshiping, we're worshiping something or someone else. Kind of as the old saying goes, nature abhors a vacuum. So if we reject God, it's like we don't worship anything. It's our worship goes to something or someone else. 
And again, that's why Kyle Eidelman said we're built to bow. Or I love G.K. Chesterton. He says when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship everything. And James K. Smith, again, it's not a question of whether you worship, but it's a question of what you worship. So the things that I over-desire, the things that get my affections too much, worship will get tied to that thing. Worship will get tied to that thing. All right, one more thing I want you to see in this passage. I want you to see the one idol we all struggle with, the one idol we all worship, because not everybody worships that purple idol over there, right? Some worship that, some worship that, some worship a black and gold thing that I have no clue why and I'm not referring to the Fort Hayes State University Tigers, just another tiger somewhere. I mean, there's so many things that we all have individual things that we worship, right? But there's one God we all worship. There's one idol we all worship. There's one idol behind the collection of all of our idols. In fact, the first Sunday, Don Yusey came up. And Don said, Garen, what really needs to happen is I need to climb up on one of those. Karen Eklund sent me an email said, the, the, God, the, the God, I know the God I really struggle with, it's, it's, it's the God of me. Now, see if I can do this without showing you the ceiling, you know, like, hey, look at the ceiling. I don't know, can you see yourselves? Can you see yourselves? This is the idol we all worship. This is the idol, we, the one that we all struggle with. This is the idol that's under all of our other idols. It's the God of me. And so in Genesis, you see it. Again, the last thing Satan says is when he says, God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be what? You'll be like God. So we all have this deep desire to be the God of my own life. I want to be God. I want to decide what's best for me. I want to determine what is most delectable, what's most delightful, what's most desirable for me. I want to choose what I think is best for myself. I want to determine from which well I drink, right? I want to decide the water that I choose. I want to decide what tastes good to me and what I'm going to pursue. Essentially, I want to decide who is Lord of my life. It's either Him, spring of living water, or it's me, or it's me. And rather than accepting Him as the ultimate good, I want to call the shots. I want to define for myself what is good and is what is worth pursuing. We were, we are, they were to taste and see that God is good. And we are, and they were to delight in the Lord. And we are, and they were to make His name and His renown the desire of our hearts but we do the same thing that they did, right? Instead of tasting in His goodness and him finding Him delectable and delighting in Him and desiring Him, I look at other things and they are delectable and they're delightful and they're desirable and I choose those things. So see how it all ties to me to Jeremiah 2? Behind it all, behind my unique individual idols is the all-pervasive God of me 
pursuing, pursuing what I deem is good, what I deem is best, what I deem is most worthy, what I deem is most majestic, what I am convinced is the thing I should treasure and I should prefer above all else. This is true of me. I was created by God for an intimate relationship with Him, a real relationship, to live under His loving rule and in relationship with Him. He passionately loves me. He desires me, and He seeks my desire and my love for Him in return. But what I have done is I've rejected Him, turned my back on Him. I want to be God. I take on the crown, and I decide what I'm going to pursue, what I'm going to love, what I'm going to desire instead of Him. This is the beginning of the gospel. I dethrone God, and I enthrone myself. And then I set up a pantheon of idols of my choosing, the things I think will delight me. And what's interesting, in these idols that I worship, really, the, the bottom line is those things are actually very self-serving. The reason I elevate them is because I think that ultimately my happiness and satisfaction and meaning will come from them. That's why I elevate them to the place they are. So really, in worshiping my idols, I'm, I'm really, bottom line, myself is what I'm worshiping. Edward Welch said, the purpose of all idolatry is to manipulate the idol for our own benefit. We want to use them. Idolaters want nothing above themselves, including their idols. Their fabricated gods are intended to be mere puppet kings, a means to an end. But then he says something really significant. Idols, however, do not cooperate. Rather than mastering their idols, we become enslaved by them. And I'm going to finish with that thought, and we're going to do that in a few weeks to, in more detail. So, if I were to just summarize to this point, I'd pull out the book Sipping Water, which is excellent. I am hearing so many people that are reading this and getting a lot out of it. I highly recommend it. We have more copies today, but you guys have been bad. You guys have a book idolatry, an obvious book idolatry in this room, because second service, there's never any books. They always get sold out. So... Uh, but if you want one, they're still going to be back there. Uh, Gary, I have one with your name on it, sir. Just want you to know. Oh, we've already got it. Already reading it. Oh, already reading it. <laughs> I was wondering. I was noticing Sandy. <laughs> I love Sandy. She is part of our small group. So here's what he says. We are ruled by the passions of our egocentric hearts. We are ruled by the passions, the desires of our egocentric hearts. Good summary. All right, one last thing that I want to do this morning, um, how I want to wrap it all up. I want to talk for a minute about identity. Um, in this, this coming spring, I've, I'm really strongly thinking about doing a whole series on identity and what we build our identity on and the only sure identity. Um, but identity and idolatry are closely related, related. And this thing about a God of me is this idea that idolatry is an attempt for me to find my identity apart from God. Every single person gets their identity, their sense of meaning, well-being from something or someone. Everybody here, all of us, we are building our identity on something or someone. And you'll either build your identity on God or you'll build it on something else. I want to take this a step further. We were created by God with three essential needs. And this may be the first series of the new year. Three essential needs. Uh, the need to believe, the need to belong, and the need to become. All three of these are hardwired into everyone from birth, every human. And, and God created us so that our identity would flow out of these things. 
We were created by God to believe. We were created with a need to worship, to devote our hearts totally to something. I just talked about that. The Bible is clear. We were created to worship Him. Colossians 1.16 says, all things were created by Him and for Him of Jesus. We were created to belong. We were created with a need for relationship. We need to live in loving community, but we were created primarily, first off, for a relationship with Him. That's why Jesus said the first and greatest command is, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. This is the first and the greatest command. We're created to belong to Him first and to belong to others in community second. And finally, we were created to become. We need to pour our lives out into service to some cause that's larger than ourselves. We were created to make an impact. That's why the Bible, we're created specifically actually for kingdom purposes, God's kingdom mission of restoring all things to Him, one person, one place at a time. That's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. I'd love, I wish I could do this with Genesis. All three of these are found in the first three chapters of Genesis, but I'm going to save that for another day. Um, our hearts are hardwired by God to live for something outside of ourselves. We were created to worship Him, to love Him, and to serve Him. We were created to believe in Him, to belong to Him, and to become or to live for Him. In other words, we're created by God to build our identities upon our relationship with Him. Here's another way you could do it, these three circles, and if I preach this in January, I'm going to come back to these three circles, but don't, that's just a preview. But the constant human temptation, the constant human temptation is to turn away from Him and to build our lives in something else, something of my choosing. I mean, our life has to be oriented towards something. It's either oriented towards God or it's oriented towards an idol. And if you'll not live for God, you will live for something else. You'll live in something else. You'll believe in something else. You will belong to something else. You will live for something else. We'll seek to establish an identity, a sense of self, by making something more central to our significance, our specialness, our purpose, and anything else. And what we base our identity upon, we will end up deifying. It will become a God for us. It will become an idol. And we'll start to worship that thing with a passion and intensity that only belongs to God. And again, I said it, even people with no religion worship something with the passion that belongs to God. So that object becomes the driving motivation of our lives, so we begin to live for that thing that we tie our identity to, like our children or our work, that degree, the boyfriend and girlfriend. Our personal identity gets all wrapped up in that object of our devotion. And as I identify with that thing, I begin to gain my sense of worth and value from that thing. I begin to feel worthwhile because of that thing. That worthwhile, that worthiness is I feel praiseworthy because of that. My, I feel validated or valuable because I'm attached to that thing. And I feel love-worthy. I feel acceptable, lovable because of my attachment to thing. So my worth gets tied into that. But the problem is I'm only as valuable as long as my children turn out right. Or I'm only valuable as long as I have a successful career. I'm only as valuable as long as I'm getting the best grades in my classes or as long as my girlfriend's happy with me. That's the problem. More and more, my personal identity becomes enmeshed with this thing, and that's dangerous. 
And the danger is, is that an identity apart from God is inherently unstable. You're building on a foundation of sand because if you lose that thing, you lose yourself. You lose your identity. The thing you really love and worship, if you lose it, it feels like you lost yourself. That's why Jesus says in Mark 8, 34, if you seek for yourself, you will lose yourself. It is inevitable. If you lose an idol, here's, how you, here's one way to know something's an idol in your life. When you lose it, it shakes you to your core. And this is the irony of getting my identity from anything other than God, because God is the only unshakable, unchanging center of life. And as long as my identity is built on anything other than Him, it's shakable and it will be shaken. If my identity is built on Him, it will never be shaken. Only God is the source of peace, joy, satisfaction, all the things we're loving, looking for. Only He is the spring of living water. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, God's foundation stands firm. He's the only one we can stand on. So this week, when we do, where is my sheet? When we do uh, the diagnostic questions, it doesn't matter. I know what's in it. Here it is. They focus a lot on your value, your worth, the image you have, the image you want to project what to you is success, what's failure, a lot of things related to image, what brands, what styles do you need to project something. So the questions this week are really trying to dig down to that level. Um, I mean, we're calling this the real game of thrones, right? This is what, what we're talking about is what David Tripp calls the great worship war. And we really need to think of our hearts as a battleground for a great war, the place where the gods are gathering for war. They're warring in my heart for my desires, for my loves, for my affections, for me to give worship to them and for me to build my identity on them. There's this huge war going on. And Satan is warring for your heart, for Peter 5, 6 says that the, the, Satan, the devil, like a roaring lion, is on the prowl seeking whom he may devour. He knows what you over-desire. He has studied you. He knows you well. And he's going to bring those things into your life. He's going he's to try to bring them in front of your eyes and your face because he knows that that's your stumbling point. And so, therefore, on the back of the sheet, there's some questions about, there's one question about temptation. What are you most tempted by? Because if you, find, if you dr drill down to the two or three sins you're most tempted by, if you look underneath those things, guess what you're going to find? You're going to find the thing you worship that makes that thing so tempting to you. All right. So, all of us through our lives, we're all going to be confronted with a lot of idols that cry out to us. Um, I, I had said that earlier, we're all going to struggle with that. But I want to close with a reminder that there's one idol we will struggle with every single day the rest of our lives. And that's the idol of what? It's the idol we all struggle with, me. Do you realize that every day when you wake up, you're in Genesis 3, do you know that? Every day is a battle for your heart. And what do you find most desirable, most delectable, most delightful? And what are you going to give your life to that day? We fight that every day. Every day. I want to challenge you with one application 
Um, Steve Lowe and I have been reading a book and have been challenged to begin the day every morning, first thing, get out of bed and kneel in prayer. And in that kneeling, Lord, I'm your servant. I'm your child. I'm here to live for you and your kingdom. I don't want today to be about me. I want it to be about you. So I offer you my day. And Lord, throughout the day, I'm going to struggle with this, but I offer myself to you. So if you desire, that's a really good application for this week. Give it a try. See how your, it's not, a, again, it's not a silver bullet, but see how your days go when you start the day kneeling before your creator and offering your day to him, elevating him to the place of the throne of your life. So would you stand with me? I'd like to end with a prayer. So would you join me? Jesus, I need to give myself up. I am not strong enough to love you and walk with you on my own. I can't do it, and I need you. I need you deeply and desperately. I believe you are worth it, that you are better than anything else I could have in this life or the next. I want you, and when I don't, I want to want you. Be all in me, take all of me, have your way with me. And all of God's people said to that, amen, which means so be it. And that prayer is on the reflection sheet, something you can pray every day. So, may we be a people who our delight, our, what we find delect, delectable and delightful, the thing that we find most desirable, may it be the spring of living water. May we be that kind of people so that then as Jesus says, that water can overflow out of us and into others' lives and people can see the difference. So let us at 12th Avenue be a community of people who are drinking from the spring of living water and not from the broken cisterns we built. Can we be that kind of people this week? So in that light, I send you into Emporia to be that kind of people. You're sent.